Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I feel a little over my head with this particular message, but I guess that could be said with any message that is given. Uh, and for those of you that are called to teach and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll understand and become very familiar with that feeling. Uh, as you progress in your work, you begin to realize that no matter what bite size you, you chew on to begin to impart, it's always a little bigger than uh, a human is built to share. It takes something supernatural to be able to impart uh, the truth of Jesus Christ so it doesn't just land in people's ears and hang out in their brains but actually drops into their spirit life and sets it aflame and changes them. This is just, uh, it's a challenging message and the reason is it's, it's covering a topic that is very delicate and I just want you to know ahead of time that my commitment is to uh, be very gentle with this message and to understand that there is a tremendous amount of nuance to each of our individual lives and that pat answers uh, can be very dangerous. And when you start dealing with the issues of genuine salvation, of if someone truly is saved, boy, I tell you what, that's like cans of worms. And so I'm just basically coming up in front of you and uh, taking a little uh, can opener, opening a can of worms and dumping it out uh, today. And yet, I want to do it very delicately and with great honor and respect to the work that Jesus Christ has done in each of our lives. Uh, he is capable of saving. I am not. He is capable of clarifying to your soul where you stand. I, I can only visit the scriptures and enunciate them with the clarity I have. And yet, this is one of those issues that I think is imperative in the body of Christ for us to walk through to have a greater sense of strength. Actually, the reason that this is brought up throughout Scripture isn't to create uh, anxiety in our soul. It's to create sureness in our soul. And that's the irony of it. Usually when we start talking about it, we're like, oh, uh, am I saved? Uh, as opposed to, I am rock solid in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean your life is perfect, but you know your position. And that is one of the key attributes that I want to see come out of this. So I named this the tenor. Now I'll go into a greater depth of why I named it that, and there will be a, a significant purpose for that, but I, the subtitle is A Study in Genuine Salvation. You notice it doesn't say a three-part series, it doesn't say a two-part series. This is a one-parter. Examining the Christian life. A lot of us would prefer if we could just say, yes, you know, look, I prayed a prayer way back in the day, I'm fine now. To bring up this topic is uncomfortable, just in its very nature, to say, are we certain of our position? Are we certain of the sureness of our faith in Christ Jesus? Now, 
my job isn't to try and bring conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But when you bring up this particular truth, it creates an uneasiness. And I don't think it's wrong that it can be uneasy. I don't think it's wrong that it can be uncomfortable. I think a lot of the best truths in Scripture create a discomfort. Uh, when I was studying hell, and I, I gave a, I've given a few messages on hell here at Ellers, I tell you what, I tremble the entire week in preparation. And it literally shakes me to the soul. And it's not because I feel that I'm going there. It is the reality of the seriousness of sin and of the seriousness of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You see it with greater clarity when you allow the truth to be spoken without the fog bank. That we as modern Christians oftentimes try and stick around truth to try and make it easier for people. We want to coddle people into the kingdom of heaven instead of preach them into the kingdom of heaven. Because preaching is foolishness. And yet preaching reaches past the mental barrier into the depths of the spirit man and awakens it. So the spirit man says yes. As opposed to the mind of a man saying, I think it's right. The spirit within a man is set aflame by the Holy Spirit of God. That is the key to the conversion of an individual. So examining the Christian life, Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. And he's speaking to the church at Corinth, which is just not a healthy church, and so it's a good reason why he's bringing this up. Listen to this line, test yourselves. He doesn't say go to your pastor and have him test you. He says test yourselves. This is something that I can't do for you. You must do for yourself. By the power of the grace of God, by the witness of the Spirit, and by the truth of the Scriptures, test yourselves. That's the command. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? The Apostle John's test. Now, that was, that was a quote from Paul to the church at Corinth. The Apostle John speaks so utterly blunt on some of these topics that many of us assume that he must not be speaking to us. It is so clear that it's uncomfortable, and oftentimes we blur over because the sharpness of John's words, which are so delicate, so kind, so loving. I mean, who cannot like John, the apostle? The guy is just love. And yet, what he says cuts. So let's go through it. The apostle John's test. I'm going to read you the uh, third chapter of 1 John. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. See, that's the kind of scripture we love to quote. It's like, oh, how wonderful is the love that the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Yay! And yet he keeps going. This context for all of this and this love that has been shed abroad is quite extraordinary. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Now that's actually one of the first sharp lines. Whether or not you caught it, I'm not sure, because it's not one that registers oftentimes. I'm going to read it over twice, just in case. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. If there's an evidence to a child of God. And that is that they have a hope in him. And as a result, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Just as he, who, who, who's he? Jesus Christ is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Boy, can you get a, uh, a little sharper, John? I mean, could you, could you add a little 
Fog bank is what usually we're wanting. Don't make it so clear. Let me say it again. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor, nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That's a very interesting line. I'm just going to read it twice, and I want these things to begin to sink in. We know that we have passed from death to life. And you can say, how do we know that we've passed from death to life? There's an evidence. And it is evidence that is meant to testify to your very soul of the fact that you have been born anew. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, and by this we know that we are of the truth, and, you, and shall assure our hearts before him. See, the concept that, Paul, that John is laying out here is that is this idea that you can actually have a, an assuredness before God. Well, how is that made manifest? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth. You see, when your life is oriented towards the benefit of the brothers and sisters around you, this is a testimony that brings assuredness to your soul. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandments. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Whew. Wow, what did I get myself into this morning? This is a challenging one, and I would just want to go straight in, not because I am the most adept at swimming in these waters, but because I think it's essential that we press forward as the church of Jesus Christ and allow the spirit of God to take these words from John and press them home in us. Let's get uncomfortable together. As Paul says, test yourselves. I'm going to read a selection out of that 1 John chapter 3, and we'll just go through it together. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the command from Paul is to test yourself, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Well, there are certain things that showcase out of our life that are a testimony even to our own soul that there is an actual change, a changeover of rulership and management of our soul, a newness of life, because you cannot 
fake these things. These are things that, well, on the outside, you can act a Christian life, but on the inside, the reason you must test yourself is you are the one that bears witness to the actual realities of your soul. Fake it all you want, but Paul says, test yourselves. You see, an act on the outside isn't what saves. It's a very real change of the inner man. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Is that true of you? Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Boy, that's a, that's a challenging one to deal with, isn't it? He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. In other words, God's seed is in him, and God has no sin in him. So if God is living in you, your life cannot just keep on sinning. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So how do you know? John actually gives the evidence. He says, this is how you will know who is of the devil and who is of God. He says, those, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That means those who practice righteousness are of God. Because you cannot practice righteousness if you don't have God. Those who do not practice righteousness are not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life. How do we know? Because we love the brother, the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So I don't know if you are thoroughly uncomfortable yet or uh, if we should just go over that one more time. But long and short, there is a wriggling in probably every one of our souls. And that is true for every one of us because we all are sort of in the same shell. Now, you could be a very genuine Christian and wriggle when you read that. And I could explain why as we go through this, and that is the word uh, have no sin has a tendency to ring within us. There's certain things in there where you could justify and say, well, I, do, I don't shut up my heart to those in need. I, I've, I've done that. And then he who commits sin is of the devil. Oh, well, I, I mean, like, are, are you saying uh, if all are measured against this test, is anyone actually saved? That's, a, that's the question that's going through many of your heads right now. How do we uphold the clear word of Scripture and yet not miss the intrinsic hope woven in it? You see, if I were to just leave you with the test of 1 John 3, and just let it hang. A lot of you could begin to immediately fall under condemnation, not just doubt your salvation, but come to the conclusion that you must not be a child of God. Now, there's a danger in that just as much. See, the Bible is not just bringing conviction. It's also showing the framework of how one escapes the control of the devil. And it is not done by you manufacturing a righteousness. It is done by falling in a helplessness, a need of salvation upon the only one who can save you. And when you do that, there is a very real transformation of soul. And so the question is, how do we uphold the clear word of Scripture that we just read in 1 John chapter 3, at the same time not miss in the very Scripture itself the intrinsic hope that is woven in it? You see, if a message like this leads to a condemnation, it is not born of the Spirit of God. It could lead to a conviction. It could lead to an alteration of life to say, I must 
be different. I cannot allow this residue of the old life to remain. You see, 1 John chapter 3 puts, puts its finger on the, in the human soul, on the Christian life, and says, is this of God? And you must answer back and say, that is not of God. That must leave. And that's the key of this message as we go through. Now, remember I called it the tenor. Introducing the tenor. Now, I don't know what goes into your mind when you think of the tenor. Do you think of a singer? Well, that's okay. A singing voice, a tenor, is a singing voice between baritone and alto or counter tenor. The highest of the ordinary adult male range. So this is the highest of the male voice, okay? Which isn't uh, to be lost upon you. Because we're dealing with the voice that actually carries the melody of a song. Okay, so that's going to be somewhat important as we progress. That which holds the melody, the main thrust of a song. That which marks the central character of one's life or habits. So you could oftentimes say, what is the tenor of their life? And the tenor would be the key melody. That melody or that tenor of their life is the key thing I want to point out today. Remember I said, I called this message the tenor. I'm going to say that there are two tenors. One is self, and one is Jesus Christ. Which one is carrying the melody in your life? And the answer to that question is the defining answer to this overall message. The tenor of your life is what you must test. Who is singing the melody line? I'm not asking if it's being sung with perfection. I'm saying who is singing it? Is it your message? Is it your life that is being exhibited? Is it you attempting to showcase to this world a righteousness? Or have you yielded up your life, become a child of God, and allowed the tenor voice of Jesus Christ to be the song, though your life sings it imperfectly? Tenor number one, self. The self-singing tenor is what we can call the essence of sin. You see, one of the ways I describe it in discipleship at Ellerslie is you have a seat in your life or a throne or a chair in your life, and it's the director's chair. It's the throne of the king. It's who is Lord, master of this body. Sin, in its very essence, is a rebellion against God's authority over his creation, and it is literally esteeming or claiming a a throne or an authority that is not your own. And so what did Satan, the serpent, woo Eve with at that tree? He wooed her with self-exaltation. You can be the tenor. This life can be about you. You can sing your own melody. You do not need to be controlled by God. You can be as God. It was a wooing of self-exaltation. And then when self exerted in Eve and then in Adam, they found themselves in a quandary because the devil did not give full disclosure. You see, when self exalts itself, it is actually not in control of life, but sin is. The power of the body or the flesh actually is overpowering to self. Even though self has exerted itself and should be in control, it's not in control. But the power of sin is. And that is what self-singing, the self-singing tenor leads to. It's the essence of sin, which is self on the throne. Life is about you. And when life is about you, when that is your primary melody line... You are lost. You are not a child of God. You are a child of the devil. And that's the basic essence of what the Bible teaches. But we have a second tenor. We'll call him tenor number two. He's the second man as revealed in Scripture. He is the last Adam. In Scripture, there's always twos. And if you hang around here, you've heard this many times. But there's always a first and a second. 
The second is the one that brings life. The second is the heavenly man. The second is of the spirit. The first is of the flesh. The second is of the spirit. The first is Adam. The second is Jesus. The first brings condemnation. Death hovers over that life and condemnation and judgment hang over it. If you remain in Adam, if you remain with the first tenor, you die with the first tenor. But if you die, put off that old man, repent of his deeds, and turn unto the new man, the second man, the second tenor, and give your life to his control, you live. So the Christ singing tenor, the essence of righteousness. There's only one that can produce righteousness, and that's Jesus Christ. So if your life is producing the fruit of heaven, guess what? That is an evidence that the second tenor is singing. So 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I've uh, inputted uh, the words tenor number one and tenor number two so you can see this. The first one is selfishness or the flesh or Adam. The second tenor is Jesus. It's righteousness. It is the power of the Spirit to live. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, tenor number one, became a living being. The last Adam, tenor number two, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, tenor number two, is not first, but the natural, tenor number one, and afterward the spiritual, tenor number two. The first man, tenor number one, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man, tenor number two, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, tenor number one, so also are those who were made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, tenor number two, so also we are those, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, tenor number one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, tenor number two. And this is the basics of the conversion of a soul. You see, we have borne the image, we have sung the lines of tenor number one. That song has been on our lips, it's tainted every single one of us. There is not one of us that is without sin. There is not one of us that is not under the thumb of judgment. There is not one of us that does not deserve eternal enmity and separation from the living one. And yet, Jesus Christ has come because God so loved. Remember that how great is this love of the Father? That he has shed it abroad. He has actually poured out the very life of his Son so that we could witness that love, so that we could participate in it. And a way has been made for us to actually enter in to the salvation of the second man. So self-fulfillment, tenor number one, versus God-fulfillment, tenor number two. I'm emphasizing a a term here. I I was reading a a biography this week of uh, a martyr in uh, Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia area. And one of the statements that was said over and over again, it was like this strange translation of any man who does not forsake his life will lose it. And any time it would say the word life, the man would always put in the word fulfillment. If anyone seeks after his own fulfillment, then he will lose that fulfillment. But anyone who gives up his own fulfillment in this life will find fulfillment. I was like, you know what? That just says it better for me. I need that because when you talk about giving up your life or holding on to your life, it's, it's not as practical as fulfillment. There's something about the word fulfillment. In every decision in this life, in the, in the, the crux of the matter in this story, was this man was realizing that to do the step and to, and to go forward in the situation that he was in, he would very likely lose his life. And if he did, he would be losing his life for no gain because the, the ministry that he was a part of, all the credit was going to go to the founder of the ministry. And he was just stepping in for a short period of time, an interim sort of during a furlough. And so 
he would get no credit for it and probably lose his life in the process. And this scripture boomed in his soul to say, whose fulfillment are you after? Is this for your fulfillment or for mine? And the man stepped forward. This is for yours, Lord Jesus. An evidence to his soul that he is a child of God because you can choose Christ's fulfillment instead of your own in any situation. It does not mean your fulfillment doesn't woo you. It does not mean it doesn't knock. It means you have the power to choose Christ's fulfillment even at the expense of your own. And in doing so, you find yourself the most fulfilled person on earth. How do you explain it? You can't, but it is an evidence. It is a proof to the soul. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, this statement is not just given once. I gave you the other references down there, and so you can see them in your notes. You should look it up. The same word is used in each one. It is spoken by Jesus each time. This line is repeated throughout each of the Gospels over and over again. This is not a small line in Scripture. The word for life is suke, which means breath of life. It can just mean life. But it also is the concept of that inner man, the soul, the center of feeling and longing or the seat of fulfillment. And so whoever is unwilling to give up that seat of fulfillment, whoever is going to hold on to it for himself and say it's mine, he will lose it. But whoever is willing to give up the suke of his life, whoever is willing to pour it out for God and give that seat of affection, that fulfillment dimension of their life unto God and say, God, it belongs to you. I do not live this life for my fulfillment anymore. He will find fulfillment. He will find something that is otherworldly because God will give it to him. But he must relinquish, and this is the essence, this is the very cornerstone of what Christianity comes down to. It comes down to this suke. Jesus touches on it and he says, what are you doing with your suke? Are you holding on to it or are you willing to give it up to me? You see, Christianity is, at its very essence, the decision in this inner chamber, this seat of affection, this seat of fulfillment, this center of who we are. Is it yours or is it his? And that defines the tenor of your life. Who is singing? Who holds the melody line? This is the defining attribute. The change of song, from death metal lyrics to a Sunday school round of Jesus Loves Me. I don't know if you can get uh, a further uh, separation. I was thinking of actually picking some death metal lyrics, you know, to give you some samples, but I didn't want to use this stage for that purpose. So let it suffice to say death metal lyrics, lyrics that literally glorify the exaltation of darkness, of death, of everything opposite the kingdom of heaven. There's been a shift. And it's so dramatic. The song that is being sung in your life is so utterly different. And can you think of a greater separation than death metal lyrics to a Sunday school round of Jesus Loves Me? The tenor changes. The lyrics change. The entire song is different. This is Christianity. When you come unto Christ, there is a change in your life, and it is a substantial change. It is not a slight change. It is not just a bonus tack-on thing to say, oh, well, and you believed? Well, great. Well, keep on with your sinning, but at least we know you prayed a prayer. You see, when you come unto Christ, you know that you've transferred from death unto life because there is an evidence. There is a new song. There is a different motive. There is a different purpose of your existence. However, in this change of tenor, did you know that you can still sing a song improperly? 
If you are a death metal singer, did you know that you can hit bad notes and you can sing improper lyrics and you can really pop your P's incorrectly? And did you know that when you sing a Sunday school round of Jesus Loves Me, you can get off key and you could do it improperly. You can even get your words wrong. However, you're singing a different song. But it's the Sunday school round of Jesus Loves Me perfect. Both can hit off notes. Both can be too loud. Both can involve spittle and splattering P-pops. Both can have broken guitar strings. Both can be sung wrongly. But when the song is changed, it is obvious to the singer and to the audience, though it be an imperfect version of Jesus Loves Me, the song is entirely different. The tenor has changed, though the song is not being sung yet the way tenor two fully intends. You see, Jesus Christ has an agenda in your life, and that is that your life would sing the tenor or the the melody of Jesus Christ perfectly, and that out of your life would showcase the full, complete stature and grandeur and glory of his person. That's what Christianity builds, but it's called sanctification. You don't start out that way. You start out as a very imperfect being that has given their life over to Jesus Christ, humbly submitted, and you are clothed in his perfect work. However, what's going on inside of you? Eh, not smelling too good yet. And yet you can boldly approach the throne of grace, not because of your perfection, but because of his. And yet what does the Holy Spirit do? Leave you as a a wad of imperfection and stinky stuff? No, he sends forth his spirit into your life And he begins to convict and to try you and to test you and to refine you and to remove dross from you. He is purifying you. He is growing you. He is sanctifying. The concept of sanctification is, in simple, making you more and more like Jesus Christ day after day. You see, we don't start out with the perfect representation of the King of Kings. He lives inside of us. One of the ways I've oftentimes described is Jesus moves in. It's like a light bulb moving into the center of your life. Is it there? Yes. And you could ask, well, how come no one sees that light bulb? It's because it's wrapped with a whole bunch of black construction paper. However, is it there? It is. Every step of obedience, you know what it does? It pokes a hole through that black construction paper, which is you, me. Every step of obedience and over a life, guess what? Less of the black, more of the light. You see, God is saving us. He saves us in the big S way, when we in faith turn unto him, but then he saves us in the small S salvation, day in, day out, less of us, more of him. And that is the process of sanctification. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whoever does not sing the Sunday school round of Jesus loves me is not of God. If you're singing the death metal song still, hey, that should be a sure sign to you that something has not changed at the very cornerstone of your life. You're still singing tenor number one. The melody of your life, the tenor of your life is still headed towards darkness. It's still all about self. Are you singing the right song even though it might not be perfect? So... In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Changing the tenor. How does one know when the tenor has changed? The illustration of the house. So I'd like to use this idea of a house, uh, and because Jesus uses the idea of a house, and I think it is really good. Matthew 7, 
Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built this house on sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. You have something genuine, and you have something counterfeit. Both were houses. One was a house that was built properly. The other was a house that wasn't. And one was built upon the truth of Jesus Christ, put its confidence in the rock. The other one didn't. It picked and chose. I always like to say that sand is just crushed up rock. It takes the truths that it wants, but it's in control. It defines the melody. I don't like that word. I like this word. This is what I want to sing with my life. Sand. And sand will prove in the end to be a feeble source of strength. It cannot save you. And so in our life, we can look at it as two different versions of a house. All of us, you could say we all have a house because the human body is called a house. However, I would like to say it this way. We have the homeless and we have the housed. And we have everything in between if you want to look at it that way. But there are those that literally are outside of the grace of Jesus Christ and are vulnerable to all the weather that would ensue in this, in this dying, battle-torn world. And there are those of us that have found our safety inside a house called Jesus Christ. Five key tests. The rain test, the cold test, the heat test, the wind test, the winter test. So I had a picture, I didn't put it up, but it was a picture of a house that was burned with fire. And it you know, sort of had the frame of the door post there. And this is the way I think a lot of people, there's like smoke you know, still you know, coming up from the house and you have the chimney over here and then you have this door frame. And so someone could say, hey, yeah, I have a house and stand in it. However, let's test your house. You see, you could claim to have a house, but it's just burned down with sin and, and death and destruction. There's nothing here, actually. So when the rain comes, how you doing? How about when the cold comes, how you doing? You see, a house, if it's a real house, gives you a fortification and gives you a barrier against rain and cold. How about when the hot of the summer comes? July comes in Colorado, whoo. That's hot. Well, especially when you move down to Phoenix. What did I hear? It's like 110 in the shade. You know, how you doing in your house? You see, if you don't have four walls with an AC unit plugged in, you're in trouble. The wind test. You see, is your hair tousled when the wind comes? That's a sure sign that you're lacking some walls. How about the winter test? You see, sin is pleasurable for a season. But what happens when the autumn season ends? How you doing during the winter? You see, sin and a life that is surrounded by sin and a life that is infused by the power of sin proves during these tests that it actually doesn't have walls. Call what you have a house, but it's burned down. It does not have the substance that Christ talks about that he has given us at the cross. You are missing something. And this is why Paul says, test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you really are in the house. Do you have the walls? Do you have the roof? Do you have the warmth in the, in the winter? Do you have the cool in the summer? This house should be temperate. It should not go up and down and all over the place. There is a testimony to the human soul that there is a very real conversion in your soul, in your life. So the homeless and the housed, the signs of homelessness, the proofs that your home is indeed not, no home at all. When it rains, you get wet. When it gets cold, you freeze. When it gets warm, you roast. When the wind blows, your hair gets rustled. The season of autumn pleasure and beauty is followed by winter chill. Though sin was pleasurable for a season, 
that pleasure wears out pretty quick. When winter comes, you wish to even die. You see, something is wrong in your life, and this is an evidence of it. The qualities of a genuine house, the proofs that your home is indeed a genuine home. When it rains, you remain dry. This is about the equivalent of 1 John chapter 3. When it rains, you remain dry. When it gets cold, you stay warm. When it gets warm, you stay temperate. When the wind blows, you do not feel it upon your skin. When autumn closes and winter comes, the temperature and character of your house remains the same. One of the key tests in scripture is when a man or a woman of God faces trial and tribulation, look at them, watch them. They should be the exact same as in a season of plenty and of success. You see, a Christian is housed by Jesus Christ. He is the walls, he is the roof. He is the AC unit, he is the furnace. You see, Jesus is who keeps us warm and who keeps us temperate. He's the one who protects us in the winds and the rain. He's the one that holds us up in a time of testing. Test us, we could say as Christians. Test us, and we will prove that we are founded and grounded upon a rock. We will not be moved. Some of us are a little afraid to yell that out. Test us, because we're not exactly sure that we're grounded upon a rock. Because in the simple things of life, we are proving defeat over and over and over again. What's wrong with us? This is where I want to be very gentle. I do not want you to presume just because you're getting a little wet or just because your hair is tousled or just because you're extremely hot during the month of July and for some reason no one installed an AC unit that you don't have a house or that you're not in a house. And this is where I want to be very gentle and I want to have the Spirit of God speak with you and not a harsh voice bring a condemnation to say you are not in the faith because you can be in the faith and have a leaky roof. You can be in the faith and never have, have installed an AC unit in your house. There are gifts of grace that are available to us that you may not know about. You may not have ever even heard of an AC unit. You didn't have a furnace. You've been layered in 20 layers of blankets throughout the winter months. That doesn't mean you don't have a house. It just means your house is getting cold in a way that it shouldn't. The inspector, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. When it rains, you experience a flood. If you are experiencing a flood in your house, and I don't just mean your basement fills up with a little water, because I've had that. And I'm not talking about a, the nature of if it happens once. I'm saying that this is what happens every time it rains. Literally, you have a flood in your house. Do you have a dripping? Any puddling? Or do you have perfect dryness? Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us could say, oh, I have perfect dryness. No water can get into my house. However, what many of us would have to acknowledge if we're talking about our Christian life is do we have flooding? Like every time the enemy tempts us, we just fall apart. Anytime someone comes up to us and says a harsh word, we hit them in the nose. In other words, we have extreme volatile reactions and there's no containment in our life. It's flooding. Well, that's a serious sign. However, if what we have is a little puddling over here, we got frustrated with our kids, we spoke harshly to our spouse. I'm not saying that that is a house without walls. I'm saying that's a house that needs repair. That's a house with a leak. There's a difference between the two. When the temperature descends below 45 degrees, does your thermometer inside your home read the same as the outdoor temperature? That's an interesting test. In other words, when you enter into a trial in your life, and it's a cold one, how's your house doing? Are you finding yourself at peace, marked by grace, where everyone around you is saying, how are you doing? Like, I have grace for this. It's hard. It's hard because I can't go outside and play. You know, it's 45 degrees, it's cold. However, guess what? There's a stability in your soul. 
are you finding yourself that you're lower than 70 degrees? Like you have a problem with your furnace. It seems to kick on and kick off at times that are intermittent and not at your choosing. In other words, you may have a furnace problem, but that doesn't mean you don't have a house. Or does it read 70 degrees indoors? You know, we'd love to just say, oh yeah, I'm always 70 degrees, no problems there. When the temperature rises above 90 degrees, does your thermometer inside your home read the same as the outdoor temperature, which would be rather hot, higher than 70 degrees, or does it read 70 degrees indoors? In other words, there's a difference. If you are 90 degrees in, if it's 90 degrees outside and you're 90 degrees inside, uh, it's a sign that you may be struggling with actually having walls in your house. In other words, there's no insulation. All the cool air inside is just gone. When the wind blows, does it force you to rebuild walls, rehang curtains and drapes, reset decorations, bring in a backhoe to remove the wind-strewn debris? You see, if every time a gust of wind comes up, everything from the neighboring town is in your living room, something's wrong. You may not have walls. Does it bring dust into your dwelling, demanding a good sweep and a mop job? You know that some of us are missing a window. And as a result, when it blows, it doesn't mean we don't have a house. It just means we're lacking the full strength of what a house can offer. Just stick in some glass into the crazy thing. And guess what? It's going to change your dust problem overnight. Or does it not affect your home at all? When the autumn season concludes and winter begins, does the atmosphere in your indoor life look like winter too? When it snows, is your sofa covered with snow? When it sleets, is your kitchen floor lacquered with sleet? When it freezes, do your pipes freeze? Do you have any drafts? Do you have any sicknesses? Do you have any busted pipes? Or is winter just like summer inside your home? You see, there's a difference between having winter in your living room and having a busted pipe. And so as God is walking you through this, I want you to allow the Spirit of God to give you that discernment to know where you stand. Are you dealing with the lack of a home, or are you dealing with a home that needs repair? The difference between the homeless and the housed, both have difficulties. If you're homeless, and you don't have the walls of a home, and the wind, and the rain, and the the snow, and the cold, whatever it is, you're going to have problems. You're going to have difficulties. Well, Both have difficulties. Someone who has a home can have great difficulties. But the homeless have difficulties that lead to death, whereas the housed have difficulties that lead to frustrations, hindrances, and inconveniences. Any of you that have had a home, especially an older home, right when it hits 15 years, uh, we can all compare notes afterwards. It can lead to frustrations, hindrances, and inconveniences. But that's a big difference between death. You see, death is what you have if you are exposed to the cold and the heat without any mitigation against it. If you are in the damp weather and you have no covering and you're calling what you have covering, you're going to find that pneumonia will set in, sickness will overtake your body, your immune system will break down, and death soon follows. You see, if you don't really have walls to a house, you die. However, if you have a house, you're still going to have challenges, you're still going to have problems, you still have a battle in which you are in. But there's a big difference in what you're showing as far as the fruits of it. The tenor of the problems of the homeless and the housed is wholly different. Example, rain. The homeless, the proofs there is no real roof and no real walls. What do they have? Misery? Yeah. Uh, Chilled to the bone, I think, is the typical term for it. Cold, damp, mold, fungus, sickness, death. These are the signs of a life that is homeless. They are exposed to dangers and to dreads that those of us with homes don't have. We're not exposed to. Housed. The evidence that the upkeep of the house is improper. You see, some of you 
are in a house. You are in Jesus Christ. You are established in Jesus Christ. However, no one's ever taught you how to install the AC unit. No one has ever taught you how to turn on the furnace. And as a result, you are showing certain signs of disrepair that can be fixed by coming unto Jesus Christ and allowing him to heal and to make things right, to allow the strength of heaven to work on your behalf. So what do we see? When, you're ho- when you are housed in Jesus Christ, you can still have leaks, puddling, repairs, frustration, hindrances, and inconvenience. Some of you, that's what you're experiencing. It's different than death, but it's still a very real problem in your life. Spiritual winds and rains. A quick list of critical sins. Now, I'm just going to go over, I don't know, it's like seven of them. Evidence that there is indeed a problem on the property. So, these are things that I want us to allow the Spirit of God to test us on. Unforgiveness, lying, disobedience, self-pity, disrespect, frustration, anxiety. Now, each of these has greater versions of them. For instance, unforgiveness can grow into resentment and bitterness and hot rage, okay? So, in other words, these are the baby versions, the infantile versions. If you are seeing any of these seven in your life... It is a sign, not that you don't have the walls of a house, but that you are not implementing the strength of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life to its fullest measure. You have leaks. Now, the other thing I need you to allow the Spirit of God to test you on is, is this the tenor of your life? If someone were to look at your life, would they say, oh yeah, yeah, boy. So what can you tell me about them? Well, they, they're really miserable to be around. They're unforgiving, lying, disobedient, self-pitying, disrespectful, frustrated always, and marked by anxiety. Is that the tenor? Now, some of you in here know exactly what each of these things are, but that doesn't mean it's the tenor of your life. It's not the song you are singing. However, you are in an embattled state where the enemy is hounding you on these points. You have leaks and puddles. So the key question, what is the tenor of the problem? Unforgiveness. Is this a problem of homelessness or of home maintenance? So if any of you are dealing with unforgiveness in your life, it's a serious issue. It is a sign of disrepair in your soul. However, is it an issue of homelessness or home maintenance? Question number one. Is the unforgiveness that you are experiencing a decided unwillingness to forgive? You know what I mean by that? I will not forgive them. Oh, that's not a good sign, by the way. It is a denouncement of what God has said, his command in scripture, you are literally exalting your will above his. Dangerous stuff. Is it an unbarred hatred and hot anger? You are allowing hatred and hot anger to flow through you without mitigation, without even concern, without conviction. Is it a growing resentment? Not just a resentment, but it's ever growing. You see, resentment doesn't know how to stop growing. It just continues to grow. And is it a poisonous bitterness of soul refusing to yield its ground? I will not give up my bitterness. I will not give up my resentment. Uh, That's not a good sign. That is not healthy. You see, these are some of the most basic elementary elements of the gospel life. When Jesus Christ saves you, what does he do? He forgives you. And the first thing he says is, now go. And allow that forgiveness to flow through you. And that is the sign even to your own soul, that there is a new voice singing in your soul. Question number two. This is another option. Is the, forgiveness a str- is the unforgiveness a struggle to forgive? And many of you in here would know what I mean by this. In other words, when I read the first list, you're questioning yourself, is that me? It seems a little more extreme maybe than what your soul is doing. However, it's still danger. 
What you have is an extreme danger in your soul if you are living in unforgiveness. However, is it more of a battle? Like you know you need to forgive and you actually want to forgive, but you're struggling to forgive. You know what God asks, but you are delaying it. A slowness to obey and or a rationalization of why unforgiveness in this case might be permissible. There is no situation in which unforgiveness is permissible, just in case, so just so I can uh, poke that balloon of yours of self-rationalization and self-justification. You see, there's a difference between these first and second. The one, first one is a sign of homelessness. In other words, it's a sign that you are lacking walls, potentially. Now, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it, it is potentially that. The second one could be a sign to you that you do definitely love Jesus and want to serve Jesus, but you are under attack. You've been hit hard, and the enemy is playing his best hand against you. Both op- options just mentioned are disastrous to the soul. But one shows signs of homelessness, while the other indicates a serious leak inside what could be a genuine home. What is the tenor? That's the key question. Is unforgiveness, hatred, and hot anger, resentment, and bitterness the tenor of the life in question? When you look at that life or when you look at your own life, is that the assessment? Yep, I'm a resentful, unforgiving, bitter person. That's not a healthy assessment. Is this the key defining melody being sung within the life under scrutiny? The tenor of a life with Christ cannot be one of sin and of self. That's what 1 John is saying. The tenor of a life with Christ cannot be one of sin and of self. Though the life may have leaks, puddles, and some damp corners, its tenor should should demonstrate the melody line of the song, Jesus Loves Me. Though the song be sung imperfectly, and the life should also demonstrate that leaks are fixed, puddles are mopped up, and damp corners are solved by the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If you are accepting your puddles and your leaks and your drips with a passivity, something's also wrong in your soul. In other words, when the Spirit of God is alive within you, when that seed has been planted and God shows you a damp corner, a leak, what do you do? You say, God, that leak can't stay. It must go. And that vigorous desire to see your home made, a shining example of Jesus Christ, is another testimony to your soul of a genuine change. A life in need of Christ, one in which the roof and the walls are missing. Christ. But this is what we would call lostness. These people do not have Christ because they're missing the walls and the roof. They're exposed to all the powers of sin, and the judgment of the devil is upon their head too. The dangerous doors. You see, there are a lot of doors in our life. When, as we're just going through our, a normal day, we have a lot of different invites. I usually call them steak dinners where the enemy serves up a steak, and oh, we love steak, and anxiety, fear, for instance, is a, is a lovely steak. Have you ever noticed that anxiety and fear does nothing to solve your riddles of life, your challenges of life, and yet we still eat it? Because at its in onset, it actually looks like an answer. It's human wisdom of why we turn to uh, anxiety and fear. It's actually not godly wisdom. The same with lust. It looks like it would fulfill us. Oh, it would make us feel good. I've been going through a rough time. This could help. Any form of lust. You can lust after more things than just a human body. And so as a result, when we turn to it, it gives a false sense. And I'm going to call them a door. They're dangerous doors. When you walk through them, the fact that you walk through them isn't a sign that you don't know Jesus Christ. It's a sign that you're vulnerable and you're in the midst of a battle. However, that door is very critical in your life, and as a Christian, I want you to begin to mark it, because there's another door I want to teach you to walk through, and it's not the door of sin and enticement and and, uh, temptation. The dangerous doors, unforgiveness is an enticement. 
It is something the devil will whisper to your soul and says, you deserve it. You don't need to, uh, to forgive them. Pa- punish them through your unforgiveness. It is a way of taking judgment into your own hands. So unforgiveness opens the door to hatred and hot anger, resentment and bitterness. When you walk through it, it leaves the door open. And now in your life is an open door which leads to far greater maladies than unforgiveness itself. Because hot ang- hatred and hot anger, when it says in James that rage, the rage and the anger of a man is proof that his religion is false. How he handles his tongue is an evidence that his religion is false. This is the number one way that you could actually begin to prove that you have not actually gone from, life unto de- from death unto life. Is this the tenor of your soul? Are you known for this behavior? Would you, those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Lying, falsehood and exaggeration. What does this do? When you open the door of, of lying in your life, even if it's with small things, it opens the door to a life of deception, con, duplicity, and hypocrisy. Uh, if you want to study the life of Jesus and how he treated hypocrites, known as the Pharisees, uh, you'll get an up-close and personal view of his opinion on this. Is this the tenor of your soul? Are you known for duplicity? Are you known for hypocrisy? Are you known for the con? Are you known for lying well? Sometimes the people on the outside can't answer that for you because you're so good. If this is the tenor of your life, it's a serious issue. Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Disobedience. This opens the door to rebellion and blasphemy of God. Now, disobedience in and of itself is a form of rebellion. Rebellion is as witchcraft. This is messing with spiritual powers that you don't want to be touching. If disobedience is a tenor of your life, it is a very, very serious evidence to the soul. Self-pity. Self-pity sounds like a cuddly sin, doesn't it? It's like, oh, how cute. Self-pity is one of the most dangerous, dastardly things you could ever touch with your life. It opens the door to complaining, grumbling, a critical fault-finding nature, accusation, and and the self-absorbed victim mentality, which very few people survive the victim mentality. Once you become the victim, you almost always will be the victim. Now, there's one thing that can save you from that, and his name is Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Pride and disrespect. When you walk through the door of pride and disrespect, most people don't realize that just the subtlety of pride and disrespect basically says, I'm above the rules. I can take things from me. This world is there for me. Young men in high school oftentimes look at all the girls around them as if they're property of their own soul. And as a result, they do with them what they want in their own mind. And it kills them. When you open the door of pride and disrespect, it opens the door to lust, sexual deviancy, and sexual addiction. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is the behavior that defines you? Irritation and frustration. They sound like lovable sins, just like self-pity. It's not that big of a deal. At least it's not something greater. Well, if you open the door of irritation and frustration in your life, it opens the door to untempered anger, rage, abuse, and ultimately murder. You do not mess with these behaviors. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? Anxiety. When you allow anxiety to remain in your life, which most of the modern church does not even look at anxiety as a dangerous thing. It's just a personality thing. Yeah, some people struggle with it. Most of us do, whether it's finances or something else, sickness. However, anxiety is a sin. It opens the door to fear, foreboding, fretting, paranoia, and ultimately paralysis. Your life will be on lockdown. Is this the tenor of your soul? Would those closest to you say that this is a behavior that defines you? What does the door of Christ open us up to? So here's the key that I want to emphasize today. 
Now, as we go through that, just because you, and I, I can't imagine, as we went through that, that some of you, that there was one person in here that was immune to any conviction on any of that list. In other words, we are in the midst of a battle. We are under siege, and we have not been discipled well by the church of Jesus Christ. We are weak. Though we should be elder in our Christian growth, we are youngins, even though we may be the leaders in this generation. We have not been groomed. Many of us have lived most of our life without AC units and furnaces spiritually. And as a result, we're more used to the chill of cold and we call it normal. Instead of reading the word of God and saying that shouldn't be. This should be temperate. I shouldn't actually go up and down. like I shouldn't respond that way when someone does that. I should instantly forgive them. I shouldn't wallow in this for a month. Because most of us say, I still forgave them. Yeah, after a month, that's still not healthy. You see, these are attributes and character traits of modern Christianity that we have grown up around and we've accepted. We've accepted the fact that our little teepee tent, whatever it is, of you know, boards that plywood that lean together, sort of like a lean-to that we sleep under at night, is the house of Jesus Christ. And yet God has established a house that is meant to change our lives and to change this world around us. There's another door. The dangerous doors and then the door that leads to health and to life. I am the door, says Jesus. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So there's all these other doors that lead into darkness. And God has unlocked the door for us, known as Jesus Christ. He says, enter here. You see, when you are tempted, when you have that issue of self-fulfillment that is knocking against your soul, God says, in every situation, I am the door. I am the door unto the grace that you need to be able to function in the manner that I require the heavenly door jesus christ when unforgiveness beckons this is an amazing thought but even though we can be struck on the cheek unfairly we can be robbed we can be harmed and abused we can forgive why because we have a door and it's unlocked and his name is jesus christ so in every situation when our tenor changes and he becomes our life we turn unto jesus and we go through that door christ offers access to the power of forgiveness. You can't forgive in your own strength. You're weak. That's why unforgiveness, you slide into it so easily. But now you have in Christ Jesus access unto a power to forgive. It's in him. And when you go into that door, through that door in Christ, you have the power to forgive people in your life. When lying beckons, so when the, the lion serves up at stake and it says, come over here. Look, you can self-preserve. You can look better in their eyes if you lie. Christ offers access to the power of boldness and the confession of sin. You know, most of us are scared to death to actually acknowledge that we have had a lack of truth on our lips, that we've said things that were false. However, what do you have in Christ? You have boldness to confess. You have boldness. You don't care about your reputation anymore. I have lied to you. And you can say it. You can say it with strength. There is no impairment. You have everything you need to begin to show that you are housed in Christ Jesus. When disobedience beckons, Christ offers access to the power to obey and to do that which is right and godly. When disobedience is knocking, you have the grace in Christ Jesus to actually obey and to do the harder thing on this earth. When self-pity beckons, Christ offers access to the power to praise him and give thanks in all things. In all things, you have the power to rejoice. You have it in Christ Jesus. So this is the evidence that you can begin to declare to your soul and to the world around you. You're a Christian. You have access to the full measure of the purchase of the cross. No self-pity for you. You don't need to indulge in that anymore. You can indulge instead in rejoicing, 
giving thanks in all things. When pride and disrespect beckon, Christ offers access to the power to be humble, to love, and to honor, edify, and encourage others. When irritation and frustration beckons, Christ offers access to the power of heavenly patience and the grace to rejoice always and in every circumstance. When anxiety beckons, Christ offers access to soundness of mind, faith, and immovable, conf- and immovable confidence in the sureness of his promise. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This is the true testimony of every believer. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I am not as I once was. My testimony to you, I'm a different man than old Eric. However, if you asked me, Eric, do you stumble? Do you have difficulties? Do you do things that you wish you didn't? Oh, yeah. You see, to give any other answer would be misleading to you to understand the nature and the character of sanctification. However, I am not continuing. Let's go back a year. There are things that I was still struggling with. My my struggles are are different, and they're at different scales. For instance, when I was young, as a high schooler, early college, lust and sexual deviancy had a huge hold on my life. And as I've come to the cross, I've seen those shackles completely busted to the point where that nature, that tenor of my life is completely altered. I honor femininity now. I will stand up and give my life to protect purity. It's a change. However, there's other layers that God begins to work on. Things, for instance, like gluttony. Because I wouldn't have called it gluttony. That's just a big appetite. I'm a hearty fellow. And yet, as God begins to put his finger on it, he begins to show me that there's still a self-satisfying, self-fulfilling behavior towards food. So as God shows me, he shows me a puddle in the corner. What am I? I'm horrified. And usually preach a sermon on it to make sure you're horrified too. (laughs) And then I allow the grace of God to come in and begin to repair that leak. So the testimony after the fact is leak repaired. There's just a little drip that's still streaming down that. I'm going to have to get to that. You see, there's little evidences that Eric is being changed and that Eric still is needing to be further changed. If you examine my life, you would find flaw, you would find puddles and leaks, maybe even things that I don't yet see. But the character and the tenor of my life is that when I see it, it's fixed. I do not excuse it, I do not justify it, and that is a testimony to my own soul of my position in Christ. Not my perfection, but his perfection to continue to carry me forward. He is my salvation. I am not the one that saves myself, but I care about what he cares about. How? Because he has given me grace to care. He has changed me. He has made me his child. You are not perfect. And that's not because I'm reading your mail and I have some hidden camera in your life that I know that. I know what the biblical account testifies of who we are. We are weak and fragile and in need of a savior. And yet, when we become children of God, the tenor of our life begins to alter and something supernatural begins to emerge. And it's something that can literally stare into the pages of scripture and look at 1 John chapter 3 And even though it convicts us afresh when we see it, we say, God, remove all the puddles from my life and thank you for making me a child of God. You see, there is a sureness in our soul because we do practice righteousness. We do repair roofs. 
We do mop up puddles. We do. If our problems affect someone else, what do we do? We go to them. We humble ourselves. And I do love the brethren. I do care about them. These are evidences to our soul. Because where did that come from? Self-centered Eric Ludy didn't care about anyone. And now I care about you? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that care. I care about the lost. I care about the dying. I care about the orphan. I care about the widow. Hey, in a self-centered life, you don't have time for that sort of thing. But something's changed within me. And that same thing has changed within you or is beginning to change within you. Foster it. Allow God to blossom it unto a full maturity. Stare into the pages of Scripture and rejoice that you're a child of God if, in fact, you are one. If you hear a message like this and you realize that the tenor of your life is self-centricity, self-fulfillment, self-idolatry, come unto the same cross that we've referred to today Humble yourself and put off that life and become a child of God. You see, this message only leads to hope. It shouldn't lead to despair. It should lead to the cross one way or the other. Either cherishing it and clinging to it or coming to it afresh and saying, God, I don't know what kind of life I'm living, but I need your life, not mine. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.